Welcome to the Legacy Nashville podcast. We are so grateful that you've taken the time out of your day or night to tune in. We pray that this message encourages you to love God, love people, and change the world. Now, let's get to the message. My wife and I moved to Nashville three years ago in August. And we got married. Uh, we went on our honeymoon, and two weeks after our uh, original wedding date, we moved. We packed up the cars and moved to Nashville. I uh, don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. But if you're crazy, do it. But the first thing that we knew that we needed when we arrived in Nashville is we knew we needed a home. I don't mean an apartment or a nice brick-and-mortar house. We needed a church. So for the first couple weeks that we came, about four weeks, we tried different churches. On the fourth week, we had a friend in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, say, hey, I went to a conference in Nashville where Heidi Baker was speaking. Uh, you, should go and, you should go and visit the, the, the church that, I, that, that hosted the conference. And we said, okay, uh, we'll go and we'll check it out. We arrived at 900 Gallatin Avenue, and I remember uh, Pastor Lau wasn't even there. Pastor Jeff Phillips was speaking on that day. Todd Mendes in all of his glory was leading worship. And the anointing was in that place. We knew from that moment that that was our home uh, to the extent that we signed up for a small group on that day. By the grace of God, it was Seth and Michelle Fairbairn's small group. I mean, how did we get so lucky? And that small group was literally a godsend to us. We've loved this house and we continue to love it and are going to love it until we go six feet down into the ground. Uh, The last two, three months, we've had the opportunity to step into the prayer coordinator uh, roles and lead the global and local prayer movements here at the church. And I say movement because I, I have to say this with all of the seriousness that I have. We are in the midst of a move of God. We're in the midst of a move of God. And you you all need to open your eyes and be aware of what's going on. This isn't normal. This isn't normal. I'll leave it right there. Well, let me get the important things out of the way. I have the cutest family on planet Earth. Throw that picture up there. Yep. This is my beautiful wife, Sonia D. Nira. And this is my little baby boy, Zayden Glory Nira. I am, I'm obsessed with my family, like obsessed with my family. And I've realized that anytime that I bring them up or anytime I show a picture of them, I immediately gain a whole new level of favor with everybody who I come in contact with. Sonia and I have been married for three years next month, uh, and it's literally the greatest decision that I ever made in my life to to ask her to be my wife. Uh, We met in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I grew up and attended Oral Roberts University. Uh, She was going to Bible school at Victory Bible College, and I was a worship leader at that church. All the guys in the church wanted her, but your boy got her. Hallelujah. Come on, can I get an amen for the fellas in there? I guess not. Well, I want to give a quick shout out to my family who are watching online, my mom and dad in uh, Oklahoma and my big brother, Jasper, my sisters in uh, Dallas, Texas. And I might even have some family overseas watching. 
My parents immigrated to the United States in 1989. My dad came first in pursuit of educational advancement, and then my mom followed a year later. In 1993, when I was one years old, my dad, he felt the call to evangelistic ministry. And so my family, as a family, we began traveling in ministry. And I started singing at the age of four. They were like, okay, y'all have sat in the pews long enough. You got to do something in the house of the Lord. (laughs) So for about 16 years of my life, we would be at a different church every single Sunday morning and Sunday night. And oftentimes, these churches were in very, very small towns in Oklahoma. If you haven't been to Oklahoma, uh, it's probably everything that you thought of in your mind. (laughs) The average attendance in these churches was 50 people or less. So looking back, looking back over the last couple of days, you know, I realized that this gave me such an incredible look at and into the body of Christ. And ultimately, it shaped and cemented the value that I have in my heart for the local church. No matter where I am across the world, I'm going to find a church on Sunday. My mom and dad would always say to us, how can you have God as your father if the church is not your mother? And you know, the point that they were simply trying to make is this. You have to love and you have to value the local church. As I took a trip down memory lane, uh, preparing for this message, uh, you know, just recollecting upon the travels to the different churches here in the United States and across the country, across the world, excuse me, there were three things that I felt like I learned about the church during that time that I quickly want to share with you. These aren't, um, these aren't specifically the meat of my notes or anything, but I just felt like I should share them. Are you ready for these? The first thing is this, the church is not perfect. And we have to be mature enough and we have to grow to be mature enough to realize that it's made of imperfect men. So when the inevitable time comes, when you're hurt or you're offended, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Amen. The second thing is this. The church is beautifully diverse. Beautifully diverse. I've been there. I've been to every type of church. Black, white, Mexican, uh, Asian. I've been to every type of church. And, it, it, and this sentiment rings true. That the beauty of the church is actually found in the cultural differences of the believers across the world. It's in us all coming together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the enemy's desire is this, is that the church would look at our cultural differences as evil or bad things. When in reality, they're the very things that God uses to make up the masterpiece that is the church. I'm not getting an amen from everybody, but that's okay. I'll keep moving forward. The last thing is this. Everyone is valuable in the church. The pastor pastoring 50 people or 15 in Poto, Oklahoma. You never heard of that, have you? The pastor in Poto, Oklahoma is just as important to the kingdom of God as the pastor pastoring 10,000 people in Charlotte, North Carolina. And when we realize this, we're then enabled to have a greater value in our hearts for the capital C church. Now, for five to seven of the years that I traveled in ministry with my parents, my dad would preach on Acts 2 
every single week. Let me put it in a different light for you. I conservatively heard Acts 2 preached 300 times in that time span. My siblings and I would regularly lament to my dad the fact that he's preaching the same message. We'd be like, Dad, do you have another message? Please, please preach something different. But what I realize now is that the Lord had placed an anointing upon my dad to preach on Acts 2. And it was a preaching masterclass. Listen, y'all, he would start in Acts 1 by talking about Jesus' final words to the disciples. And then he would come into Acts 2 and he would talk about how the disciples waited in the upper room. And then things would get real intense as he talked about how they received the infilling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues. But the climax of the message would come when Peter would address the crowd who thought that they were drunk. Legacy family, would you allow me to preach it like my dad did? (laughs) Now listen, now listen. My dad is a beautiful African man with a beautiful African accent. He would say, men and brethren, We are not drunk as you suppose. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. That in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants. And on my maid servants. If it was real good that day, he'd repeat that part. And on my men servants. And on my maid servants. I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. Now listen. At that point, the crowd would go absolutely wild. There was only about 20 to 30 people in the room, but it felt like we were in the packed-out Staples Center and the GOAT LeBron James had just hit a game-winning shot over Steph Curry or posterized somebody with a nasty, nasty dunk. I'm telling you, listen. Jordan knows what I'm talking about. Pastor Lyle does too, doesn't he? Yup. It was electric. And at that point in the sermon, people will come down to the altar, hundreds, if not thousands of people during that five to seven year time span, and they will be filled with the Holy Spirit, many with the evidence of speaking in tongues. That was my experience with Acts 2. And today I have the honor to continue that conversation as we study Acts 2. The title of my message today is the early church lifestyle. Let's stand as we pray. Jesus, breathe on your word. Breathe on your word. I thank you for the expectation that's in the room. And when preparation meets expectation, revelation is poured out. Eyes are illuminated to see. 
I pray that this wouldn't just be a good message, God, but that this would convict the hearts of people. I pray, Lord, it will convict them, Lord, to turn from their ways and to turn toward you. I pray that we wouldn't be encouraged and inspired in Jesus' name. As we continue standing, let's just read together Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. Are we ready? One, two, three. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. You may be seated. I have absolutely loved our summer study series. Has anybody else enjoyed it? Pastor Pastor Lau has absolutely been waxing deep every single week. Just to give you a quick recap of what we've studied thus far, week one, he talked about how we are all witnesses. Week two, he talked about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Week three, he talked about repentance. Repent more. Last week, he talked about doctrine, unless you were in the 11 a.m. service. If you were there, you were there. If you weren't, you weren't. But after reading a portion of scripture, one of the things that I like to always do is, is just think about and ponder the implications that the verses that I just read hold. So here are two thoughts that I want to quickly share with you about Acts 2 verse 42 uh, to 47. The first thought is this. It is so interesting that the writer, Luke, felt that it was important enough to describe the united practical lifestyle of the new church and this believers after, after they had had such a radical experience. Let me break it down like this. Acts 1, Jesus gives his last words. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. But first, you got to wait for the gift. Acts 2, hundreds of people are in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. Some couldn't wait long enough. It was boiled down to 120 people. 120 people received, as they were waiting and praying, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it was like tongues of fire upon them. To the point, they began to speak in tongues and people who were who were gathered in the city to celebrate the feast they came running because they were like hold up hold up hold up hold up hold up they're speaking my language and and some of them thought that they were drunk and peter's like no 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 we are not drunk as you suppose but this is that which was spoken by the prophet joel and he preached a fire message 3,000 people got saved. And then the next passage of scripture, they want to talk about how they ate together. Why was the fact that they went to church together so important? Why was the fact that they broke bread together so important? Why was the fact that they prayed together so important? These are important things for us to think about, I believe, because they should have a major influence on the way that we walk, we talk, and we live out our lives as a community of believers. Amen? Amen. The second thing is this. They had everything in common. Scripture is so clear about the fact that 
these believers that were saved received Jesus on the on the day of Pentecost were from different places and had different languages. And the b- disciples began speaking in those languages when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We read that in Acts 2, verse 6 to 12. So naturally, we have to assume and infer that they had different ways of living. But because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, their cultural differences took a back seat to the singularly most important thing, the singularly most important commonality that they held, and that was the commonality of Christ. This is at some point, got to be a challenge to our generation of believers. We have to put aside our doctrinal, our denominational, our preferential, our cultural, and our racial, and our racial differences to make Christ's leadership and lordship over the church the singularly most important factor in our lives as believers. You don't have to amen me. I'm cool up here. And Pastor Lyle, I'm going to leave that there because that's a whole other message that I'm going to let you take care of. (laughs) Now, last week we spoke about the early church's devotion to the apostles' doctrine. This week we're going to focus on the other three things that they devoted themselves to. And that is the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. These devotions were key to the early church's lifestyle. As we dive into these three devotions, I think, and examine how they can influence our lives, I believe that it's important for us to know that devotion produces fruit. Inversely, lack of devotion produces fruit. And we get to decide what fruit we're seeing in our lives based upon what we are or aren't devoted to. By devoting themselves to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, it produced the fruit of communal unity, harmony, and generosity in the church. This, 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 this is the early church lifestyle. So let's dive in. We're going to first talk about their devotion to the breaking of bread. Are you ready? Are you ready? Here we go. You know, the New Testament actually uses the term breaking bread to describe two different types of communal experiences. The first is the Lord's Supper, commonly known to us as communion. This is a spiritual activity that they would practice as a community to remember the work of Christ for them upon the cross. This was a memorial supper that was actually instituted by Jesus himself on the night that he was betrayed. The Lord's Supper was observed in the confines of the temple. And we see in Acts 20 verse 7 that the early, early disciples would meet on the first day of the week to break bread. This was one of the spiritual act, acts that they devoted themselves to. In Pastor David Guzik's commentary, he writes that even living so close to the time when Jesus was crucified, they still never wanted to forget what he did on the cross. How much more important is it for us to never forget? The second context that they use breaking bread in is the context of a common meal. This was an act that they did from house to house. Acts 2.46 says, And breaking bread from house to house, they were eating their meals with gladness and simplicity of of heart. They would eat meals together. 
And these meals would take place outside of the confines of the temple. These would be meals, and these meals would serve to strengthen the bond and the connection between the believers. On Friday night, I had the opportunity, my wife and I had the opportunity to celebrate uh, Spencer Phillips' birthday with him and his wife at the Optimist. It was fire, just letting you know. But I remember by the end of that, by the end of our, our, our time together, we prayed and I felt more, I, fe- I left feeling more bonded and connected than ever to Spencer and to Molly. They will break bread together. Breaking bread in both of these contests is important for the believer. I'm going to say that again. Breaking bread in both of these contexts is important for the believer. We need to have times of reverence where we break bread together as a community in remembrance of Jesus. But we also need to have time where we just meet up at a house or at a restaurant or even here at the church like we're going to do on Tuesday at the team night block party. If you didn't sign up, I'm sorry, you can't come. Ask Sarah. And these times serve to just eat and play and have a good time. Devotion to the breaking of bread. This is the early church lifestyle. The second thing we want to talk about is their devotion to prayer. It's vital to the life of the believer to include times of communal prayer and to their disciplined spiritual practices. It's vital. We all know this scripture in 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I will hear from heaven and then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's so important for us to know this is the call of a community. This is not just the call of an individual. I think a lot of times we read this and we're like, okay, my individual prayer life has to get good. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's true. But the most important thing is that the community's prayer life has to get stronger. I believe that the precedence that our church is placing on the place of prayer is so powerful and so biblical and falls right in line with the early church's lifestyle. We all know the story at the beginning of the pandemic, the ministry of the prayer room inadvertently became one of the most important ministries in our house to the point where now it's reaching literally millions of people across the world. A couple months ago, uh, Pastor Lau Uh, approached my wife and I and really the whole staff team and expressed the need for a local prayer room. He was like, yes, we're so excited and glad that the global prayer room is reaching so many people, but we need a local prayer room expression. We need a boiler room where people can come, where they know that on this day, from this time to this time, they can come and be in the house of the Lord and pray. And that's how local prayer room was born. In his commentary on Acts, Kevin Connor says that a prayerless church... Say it with me, is a powerless church. The fact of the matter is this the church was born in prayer. The church is built on prayer. And the church will be sustained in prayer. And, and, and listen, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You don't get a say in whether that's true or not. It's the fact of the matter. Communal or corporate prayer allows our prayer lives to grow, to mature, and to be strengthened. 
I love what Fritz Cherry says. He says, corporate prayer opens your heart to the needs of others. Not only does it bring encouragement, repentance, edification, joy, and the feeling of love among believers, but it shows togetherness and the body of Christ working together, submitting to the will, to the will of God. The strength of our communal prayer life is the sum of the strength of our individual prayer lives. But what I love and I believe with all my heart is that the beauty of it all is the best place to have your individual prayer life strengthened is in the place of communal prayer. You having, you having trouble praying? Come to local prayer room. You having trouble praying? Call a buddy up. I promise you'll be strengthened. Why? Because people naturally pray different. They pray different based on their, they pray different based on their personalities, their cultural upbringings, and multiple other factors. I'm in love with the, the local prayer room. I'm telling you, Thursdays from 9 to 11 are my favorite time of the week. How many of you all know who Franklin Cole is? Raise your hand if you know who Franklin Cole is. I feel sorry for all the people who don't. I really do. Well, if you know Franklin Cole, then you know that anytime the doors of this church are unlocked for prayer, you'll find Franklin here. You want to find Franklin? Just look and see if prayers happen in that church. And I love it. I love when Franklin comes in because Franklin is a very, uh, would you, I wouldn't say reserved, but he holds himself with a lot of dignity. Franklin walks in, sometimes he'll sit in the back, sometimes he'll sit in the front, but he'll come in and he'll just, mm, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And every now and then you'll see Franklin get up and just, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then me on the other hand. If you know me, thank God we have that 20 minutes at the beginning where we wait on the Lord and are quiet. I'm just going to say, I have no shame in my game. If you know me, I can't sit still for 30 seconds. And if you know me, I promise you, I promise you, I walk in every prayer, prayer meeting and I'm like, I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to yell. And then God touches me and I'm like, oh, hallelujah. Hey, God. I'm up here groaning, just like groaning. Just, I don't even know what's going on. I'm like, oh my gosh. But you know, having the opportunity to watch Franklin's prayer life has caused my prayer life to grow exponentially. And seeing the fruit of prayer in Franklin's life has caused my, my prayer life to grow in ways that I never could have thought or imagined. I promise you that hearing and seeing other people pray differently than you will cause you to grow in your expression of prayer. One more scripture just to reinforce the, uh, the script, uh, about the power of praying together. Matthew 18, verse 19 and 20. Again, I truly tell you that if two of you on earth agrees about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Devotion to prayer. This is the early church lifestyle. The final devotion that we want to examine is their devotion to fellowship. Acts 2 gives us clear understanding that we are called 
to a commitment of fellowship with our family of believers. In his Acts commentary, Kevin Kevin Connor again writes, all who walk in the light as he is in the light should have fellowship with each other. If we are in fellowship with the Father and the Son, we should be in fellowship with each other as believer priests. You want to know why I love that statement? Because it eliminates every excuse for the idea of an independent Christian life. You know what? I'm going to say it plainly. The mindset that you don't need to be committed and accountable to a body of believers is antichrist. And ultimately, it's a tactic that the enemy uses to snuff out believers. If he can get you alone, he can take you out. But if you're in a crowd of people like this, communing and in fellowship, how's he going to take you out? We were made for fellowship with the believers. Wired within us is the innate need for communal fellowship. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. There's a beautiful word in the Greek that encapsulates this concept of fellowship so beautifully. And that word is koinonia. Can you guys say it with me? Say koinonia. One more time. Say koinonia. Over the last three years that we've been at Legacy, um, I've had specific moments when I was around my Legacy family just doing life and in worship where the Holy Spirit would whisper this ear, this word into my ear. And I, I had no clue. I didn't, I understand that, I understood the essence of the word, but I didn't understand the word. One of those times was during the encounter night in April where there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I remember specifically that night, there was a spirit of prayer that was released upon this house. Does anybody remember that? I remember during that experience, the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear and said, Kononia, Kononia, Kononia. And then another time was after a couple small group that was led by Seth and Michelle Fairbairn. It was an opportunity. It was, it was a night where we had gone specifically deep and had shared our vulnerabilities. And I remember leaving that time with, uh, with our small group and hearing the Holy Spirit whisper, Koinonia, koinonia, koinonia. And another time was on a van ride back from Legacy Owensboro where our worship team went to do a a, a worship night. And I remember we were just joking around, singing old church songs. Nicole was talking about essential oils. I mean, it was awesome. It was awesome. About that frankincense and myrrh. (laughs) And we even had an epic moment when we got our whole team's Chick-fil-A mobile order in one minute before they closed. It was epic. I'll tell you, it was epic. But I remember on that bus ride, the Holy Spirit just whispered in my ear. When everything got quiet, he whispered in my ear, koinonia, koinonia, koinonia. So let, let, let's just define and figure out what this word mean. means. I want to give you three different definitions. The first one is the Webster's definition. It says koinonia is the f- Christian fellowship or body of believers. It's the intimate spiritual communion and participative sharing 
in common religious commitment and spiritual community. That's good, isn't it? The Wikipedia definition is this. Wikipedia is now a reliable source. Okay? Okay? It says that koinonia refers, koinonia refers to such concepts as fellowship, joint participation, the share which one has in anything, a gift jointly contributed, a collection, a contribution, It identifies the idealized state of fellowship and unity that exists within the Christian church, the body of Christ. And the last definition is my definition, because I've had the opportunity just to get this word into my heart. Really, it's my connotation of the word. It's that koinonia is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of communal fellowship, engagement, commitment selflessness and generosity of Christian believers first with their Christ and their fellow believers and it's all made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit as I was studying um, this word and just like getting it in my heart I believe the Holy Spirit gave me a revelation uh, on this word and we got to realize that revelation revelation is deeper than definition. Revelation is, it's deeper than revelation. It's it's intangible. It's something greater than what we can put to words. But the revelation was this. Koinonia is a reality. It's a reality created by the work of Christ that we get to live in as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Do y'all see that? We as believers get to live inside of a reality that Christ created that is accessed by the outpouring. How special is that? How special is it? You'll get it at home. I think you'll get it a couple days later if you haven't gotten it already. But how special is that? Is it that in his grand plan for the church, (laughs) God was intentional enough to create through his son and through his spirit a reality for believers that would enable us to live in a place of of harmony, unity, and togetherness. And it's ultimately the glue that held the early church together. It held them together even in the face of persecution and all sorts of hardship. And this should also give us the discernment to know that the enemy is consistently and is constantly scheming on how he can disrupt the koinonia of the body of Christ. There's not a moment. It consumes his thoughts. It consumes the thoughts of the enemy. How can I disrupt them? How can I cause wedges of division? How can I cause wedges of, of, of offense? How can I cause selfishness to, to creep in like poison? For our house, this is what I believe. I believe that as we continue experiencing the move of God that we are experiencing, we must be aware. We must be aware of the devil's desire to bring an end to it. 
devotion to prayer. This is the early church lifestyle. Now, let's, as we turn the corner and begin our descent. <laughs> I've been on a lot of planes lately. <laughs> Flight attendants, prepare for landing. <laughs> Every time I hear that, I'm like, dang, I was working. Let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Why is the message of the early church lifestyle important to us and to our generation? I believe the answer is this. Speaking of the millennial and Gen Z generations, we are two of the most isolated and lonely generations in recorded human history. I'll give you a couple proofs just to back this up. In a study called the U.S. Loneliness Index done by Cigna Healthcare Company in 2018 and 19, They surveyed more than 20,000 U.S. adults 18 years and older and found that 61% of them, or three in five people, said they felt alone and isolated. Their findings actually moved Cigna to declare that America has a loneliness epidemic. You couple that with the year 2020, and studies are already showing that COVID-19 has brought compounding effects to the loneliness epidemic. During the height of the COVID virus, 28% of Americans who live alone, that's almost 92 million people, had little to no human contact for multiple months. I would absolutely love to testify that these statistics and findings that we just discussed aren't or don't apply to us as believers. I would love to testify about that, but I would be lying. I would actually, I would absolutely be lying. Because many of us, even today, sitting in here today, can find ourselves in these statistics. So the next question we have to ask is, what should we do? What should we do? And I believe that we have to wage war on isolation. In the last half century or so, we've seen our country declare war on several issues that have plagued our society and the world at large. The war on drugs, the war on terrorism, the war on opioids, etc. Well, today, I want to boldly declare that in this house... We're waging war on isolation. And the way that we're doing it is we're doing it by following the example of the early church's lifestyle. So next question, practically, and in addition to the three devotions that we just discussed, how do we wage war on isolation? The number one thing is this. You got to plant yourself. You have to plant yourself. The number one way to wage war on isolation in your life is to plant yourself in the house of the Lord. Scripture is so clear in Psalm 92 verse 13 that those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. A plant without an adequate soil or root system is bound to shrivel up and die. It's bound to. 
I talked about it a little before, but when my wife and I transplanted ourselves from Oklahoma, we knew that the single most important thing that we could do was not find a job, was not do this, this, and that. It was finding a community of believers in the house of God that we could plant ourselves in. Planting yourself in the house of the Lord is both a spiritual and a practical act. Spiritually, we plant ourselves in the house of the Lord by making a covenantal decision. A covenantal decision, not a contractual decision. That says if you do this, 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 and that, and please me, and tickle me, and do all the things that I want, then I will, then I'll stay. No. We make a covenantal decision that says through thick, through thin, through hardships, through offense, through all of this, I promise, I promise, I promise, I'm committed to you. I'm committed. I'm committed to you till death do us part. Practically, we, pre- we plant ourselves in the house of the Lord by giving up our time to be in the house of the Lord. I love what David said. He said, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord. For us at Legacy, that means that we attend church on Sundays. Not once every quarter, not once every month. That means we place a priority to be in the house of the Lord when the church doors are open. I see a lot of you looking at me funny, and that's okay. That's okay. Because the fact of the matter is, it's in this place that you find safety. We attend encounter nights. We attend local prayer rooms. We serve on a team. We commit to being a part of a grow group. And when opportunity arises, we hang out with the fam. Side note, the invitation to hang goes both ways. I'm tired of hearing people up in here talking about, I wasn't invited. Why don't you invite somebody? Why don't you ask somebody if they can come over? Why don't you ask somebody if they can go get some Jenny's ooey gooey butter cake after, after church? Golly. Oh. Golly. I'm trying to get him for you, Pastor Lyle. I'm trying to get him. Because I don't preach all the time. I lead worship. They're cool with me leading worship, so I may never preach again. And I may never preach again. So I'm going to say it one more time. Listen, listen, not once a month, not once a quarter, not once a year, get your butt in the house of the Lord. Get your booty in the house of the Lord. Golly. Oh my God. I'm getting mad up here. I'm just mad. I'm, about to throw this I'm just about to throw this water, man. And to our generation that's watching online, you need the church. You need the church. Stop buying into the lie that you don't need the church. That's an antichrist spirit that they're trying to put into you. That's a cultural new age spirit. You need the church. You need the church. You need the church. Y'all acting like he... We got people just befundered about the fact that they're being attacked by the enemy. Like, why is he attacking me? You go to church once a month. 
You're not planted. You're shriveling up and you're dying. And the enemy is... Oh, my gosh. My time is running out. Oh, help me, Jesus. The second thing is this. You have to establish an inner circle. We are only as strong as our inner circle. No matter how strong that you think you are, you are only one circumstance away from needing somebody to lean on. You're only one circumstance, one situation in your life, one car accident, one whatever. I was about to say broken ankle because my homie over here, Kirk, broke his ankle the other day. He had surgery. And we had the opportunity to send him dinner. Why? Because he's planted. Because he's planted in the house of the Lord. And he's established his inner circle. Your inner circle is comprised of people who know your weaknesses. Who know your strengths. Who pray for you consistently. You pray for them consistently. And you both know that if a situation arises, you got each other's back. Do you have an inner circle? Do you have people who know you? Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9 and 10 says that two people are better off than one for they can help each other, uh, each other succeed. If one person fails, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Moving on to verse, verse 12, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two who stand back to back can, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. I'm going to show this to you real quick. I got my gun. Now this gun represents the weapons of our warfare. And the weapons of our warfare, they are mighty. They're mighty to God to the pulling down of strongholds. But anybody who knows warfare knows that if you are alone on the battlefield, you are susceptible to being picked off by the enemy. Why? Because they're... What happened? (laughs) Because there are blind spots that you have around you that are virtually impossible they're virtually impossible for you to be able to cover on your own. So the enemy could be back there, but then what happens over here? And what happens over here? And what happens over here? There's actually a military term for this. It's called sitting duck. Put that up there real quick. As Spencer squirts me. Sitting duck. Do we have the sitting duck definition? Sitting duck is someone or something who is an easy target who is defenseless or vulnerable. I've been shot so many times I shouldn't be alive right now. I've been shot by Spencer, not actually in real life. (laughs) I grew up in the suburbs, you say. (laughs) But the sad thing is this. Listen up, listen up, listen up. The sad thing is this. This is how so many of us live our lives. Our thought process is that we can do it all by ourselves. I can fight for myself. I can get the enemy by myself. But the enemy's over here and over here wreaking havoc on your lives. 
But watch what happens when I get my inner circle. Come on, guys. Where my boys at? Watch what happens when I get my inner circle. Now watch this. Come over here, Jordan. Come over here. We'll just, we'll just make this real concise. At first, I was alone. At first, I was alone. But then I got an inner circle. And now, no matter where I turn, I'm covered. And so now, when the enemy tries to come, and when he tries to attack me, I'm covered. Inversely, when the enemy tries to come and attack one of my inner circle homies, they're covered. Do you see how this works? Do you see how this works when you plant yourself? And then when you get an inner circle, you're covered. You're covered. But then watch this, watch this. What happens if one of us are wounded in warfare? What happens when one of us are wounded in warfare? This is what happens. We reform around the wounded one. We reform around the wounded one. Now listen, as the wounded one is recovering from the wounds of warfare, we're fighting for him around. We're taking care of him. We're making him, we're looking at the devil like, come on, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Are you covered? If a circumstance in life arises, are you, who are you, who are you going to call? Who, who can you call? Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? I know who I'm calling. I'm hitting up Pastor Lyle. I'm hitting up Kirk Douglas. I'm hitting up Ron and Shana Ross. I'm hitting up Michelle and Seth Felber, Berber. I'm hitting her, them up like, hey, I got a situation. I got a situation that I need help with right now. Are y'all seeing this? I'm almost done. Can you thank these guys for helping me? I want to invite my brother. I want to invite my brother Kevin Alvarenga up real quick. We're getting ready to close, y'all. Last week, um, actually, Kevin had been on my heart for a little while. I was out of town for a couple weeks, so I didn't have the opportunity to talk to him face-to-face. But last week, as I was exiting uh, the sanctuary after the first service, he was walking in, and I asked, what up, Kevin? How you doing, man? And Kevin looked at me. He said, I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, And I I looked at him. I said, "Uh uh-uh. Hold up. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. What's going on, man? So we just came to the side real quick, and we get to share a little bit. And um, then I began to pray for him, and then Ray Solario walked up. And I said, Ray, come on, come over here. And just in the, in, the, in the lobby, we had the opportunity just to minister to Kevin real quick. But Kevin sent me a voicemail this past week that really touched my heart, and I just want him to share just for the next minute or so. How's everybody doing? Hey. hey. Uh, just very, very quickly, um, it was just a moment of, uh, I was going through isolation, of just not uh, feeling like I was alone. You know, for so long in my life, I had to do stuff alone by myself. Uh, being immigrant to this country, being with my mom by herself, it was like, I have to do everything by myself. I don't need nobody. Um, and it was just that mentality that I had where it was just like, if something comes my way, you know what? I got it. I don't need anybody else. And it was just... 
the devil uses isolation to really scheme and really plant things in your heart and really just use that to destroy your family, your faith, your friends. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was just scheming because I didn't have community. I didn't have nobody around me. And because I thought I could do it all by myself. But when I came to the realization where it was just like, I have family, I have somebody that I can lean on, it was like, it was so much better. It was so much like, I can fight this now and I can go against what's going on. And I don't know why anybody in here may be feeling like you are feeling isolated, something that's happened in your life. But let me tell you that isolation is not the move. That's not. It's not, it destroys you. It will destroy everything that God has built in you. And I felt weak. I felt like, man, like, if I tell people my problem, you know, it's going to be, I feel weak. Like, you, you're weak, you're soft. But it's like, no, that's not the point. It's like, the devil knows the calling that God has on your life. And it's like, he's just going to wait for that one moment to destroy you. And if he has that moment, he's going to use it. So I will no longer give the devil that moment to destroy me because I have family. Come on, just stand up all across the room. What do we see? What do we see here? The fact of the matter is this. We're better together. We're better together. You may be feeling alone, but we're better together. Not only that, we need each other. We need each other. We need koinonia. This is the way of the early church, joining together, hand in hand, brother to brother. If you don't mind, just join hands with the person next to you. And we're closing now, but I just want to sing this chorus first. Just bow your heads across the room. If this message has spoken to you, and you're someone who has found themselves in a place of isolation, a place of loneliness, Would you just be so bold as to raise your hand right now? Just raise your hand right now. If you found yourself in a place of isolation, in a place of loneliness, all across the room, if that's you, just like you can break hands with the person next to you, just lift your hands. If you found yourself in a place of isolation and you just need somebody to lean on. Father, right now, all across the room, I pray for my brothers and sisters who found themselves in a place of isolation and who are in need of somebody to lean on, who are in need of somebody to cry up, whose shoulder to cry upon. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe life into them right now, that you would bring people across their path in the name of Jesus, that they would reach out to the people who they know they can reach out to. For those people who don't have an inner circle, Father God, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that you would divinely bring people into their circle who would minister to them, who would help them, who would help them understand and know that they are not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. We come against the enemy. We come against the schemes of the enemy. We come against the voice of the enemy. We come against the voice of the enemy who speaks and who tries to torment in darkness. We believe and we agree in the name of Jesus right now, right? The spirit of isolation is being driven out of this house. In the name of Jesus, we decree and we declare right now. And even as, even as we close this service, I decree and declare right now things are shifting in the spirit. I had this song on my heart the whole week. And I just want to sing, a couple, sing the chorus a couple times. Is that okay? Lean on me when you're not sure. 
to the store and give us a good rating and review. This helps our podcast reach new people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Until next week, love God, love people, and go change the world.